This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowship. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your speaker today. We thank you for listening in on our podcast and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today. The title of our message is number five of the Identity Matter series, Data Gathering of the Flesh. So we're looking forward to seeing what the Lord is going to be revealing to us today. But if you want to start out by opening your Bibles, that would be great. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. There is another passage that is in Isaiah, and that is the Lord saying that, Behold, I, the Lord thy God, wipe away your transgressions, and remember not your sin anymore. Now I got a question for you guys. Why is it that God literally, according to this passage in Hebrew, He takes His hand and He wipes our sin off of the board? He does record it. But then He takes His hand and He wipes the sin away. And then He says, I remember not your sin anymore. Why does God leave us with a memory of our sin when He Himself has no memory of our sin? God doesn't need a memory of sin. We are the ones that need a memory of sin because if we sinned and didn't have memory of it, every time that we would choose to sin, we would think it was the first time that we sinned. And we wouldn't think it was that big of a deal. So we need a memory of our sin. And that is where we get in trouble. Is in the memory of the sin. That is the area that Satan attacks to trap us. Because we have a memory of our sin. Memory is also where we get the idea of experience. Of a resume. Of a track record. So the enemy uses that whole idea of memory of sin to say we are experienced at that sin. We are experienced at witchcraft. Now that is an offensive word to, and should be an offensive word to the entire body of Christ. To associate our acts of rebellion as being directly associated with witchcraft. You see, but when Moses had that staff and he was standing before the Antichrist, back then they called him Pharaoh, when he was standing before the Antichrist with his staff, that staff, that stick, that piece of wood was symbolic for the power and presence of God. And so when he was standing there before Pharaoh, what someone remind us, whether you saw it on the movie, or that you read it in the scriptures, someone tell me what the Antichrist decided to do as Moses was standing there with his staff, what did the Antichrist ask his magicians to do? This is very, very important that this whole thing about Moses dialoguing with the Antichrist is God revealing the technique that Satan uses on our flesh to this very day. 
So the magicians came out with a staff. The staff is also a symbol of satanic power. This is not just God. Wizards have rods and staffs. A lot of the classic pictures that you see of wizards, they've got a staff in their hand. It is a symbol in general of power and presence. And so these, these magi... You say, wait a minute, Magi is who was seeking out the baby Jesus. Yes, the Magi is short for magicians. They use the power of the stars, and, and today we call them horoscopes. It's rebellion, it's witchcraft. These men were involved in witchcraft. Satan was empowering these little these little rods and staffs that these magi had, and they laid their staffs down in front of the Antichrist, and these, these pieces of stick turned into snakes. And of course, Moses went, Man, I've been whooped. I can't do that. Is that what happened? No. What does God tell Moses to do? Exactly, lay his stick on the ground. And of course, the stick rolled over the snakes, right? No, no what did it do? So God's staff turned into a snake and devoured the other two snakes. And then turned back into a stick. Moses' staff. You see, there is nothing absolutely nothing that Satan can create. Nothing. Everything is a replica. You see, Satan knew what the power that was in Moses' staff. Satan knew that Moses was absolutely a nobody. He had no abilities in and of himself. Remember when they were fighting the battles and as long as the stick was held above Moses' head, they won the battle and as soon as it dropped below the head, which means Aleph, as soon as it dropped below the headship, the leadership of God, the battle began to fail. So what did they do? Because Moses is getting tired. Have you ever tried to hold something up in the air while you were working on it? I mean, three minutes later, you're already tired. Can you imagine hours? What did they do? Held the rod up, but the leader's hands had to stay intact with the staff. Satan himself reproduces that every single day. He too has got workers of rebellion, of witchcraft. You see, he doesn't need to turn sticks into snakes anymore, although it can be done. This is a technique that Satan uses to trip us up. So we're going to talk about gathering data, which is what the enemy does in replicating what God does. God gathers data to give us understanding, to give us foresight so we don't make certain decisions. But the enemy does it for the opposite reason. So, when God said in Isaiah 43, 18 and 19, He says, Do not ponder. 
Pondering is not just remembering. Pondering is like some people do in their devotions. They meditate. They meditate on things of, the, of God. Pondering is that same idea. It's, it's like reaching out and embracing it again. Do not embrace in your mind the former things that you have done. In fact, be careful about even calling them back. And here's why this scripture is very important. If God took his hand and he wiped away your sins, and he remembers not your sins anymore, can you imagine what it does to God to continually, because you feel guilty, because you continually remind God of sins he doesn't even remember. Because you feel guilty and you have to talk about it. Because you feel better when you talk about it. So you're constantly bringing your sins back before the throne of God. When God said, I have wiped these away. I have no memory of what you're talking about. We at times, in our own ignorance, are we putting God in the position of being called the liar. We are telling him, surely you remember what I've done here. And God says, I remember not your sins. And when we constantly keep bringing them before God and not accepting the fact of what he's already done, the finished work of the cross, we are setting him up in our minds and with others to be, for him to be a liar. Why are we tempting God? Why are we mocking God? Because we have to have a little self-talk therapy so we feel better? It is most appropriate, like with forgiveness, when you have done anything to hurt someone, you go before God and you say, God, I have sinned before you. And he's most likely going to go, yes, you, you have. And then my response needs to be before God, I choose to appropriate the forgiveness that was already granted on the cross that powerful day of redemption. You are forgiven. See, God reminds us of what he already did. He doesn't make it new by re-crucifying Christ. There are scriptures in the New Testament about there are those who re-crucify Christ. We keep Jesus Christ on the cross for some reason because we've got to re-crucify him. It is mockery of the living God. We need to appropriate God's timeline according to his truths. Forgiveness was granted on the day of redemption. So when you seek forgiveness from God, it needs to be appropriating his forgiveness. Don't ask for it. Appropriate it. God, I accept your forgiveness for my sins instead of begging him like he's some kind of master even though he is our master. You don't need to beg God for anything. You appropriate position so you can have condition. 
That is the most significant truths that are within the exchanged life is appropriation of what already occurred. Don't try to re-crucify Christ. Don't tempt God with remembering your sins. Don't do that. It is done. It is finished. But you still don't miss the steps of confession, appropriation, and walking in appropriation. So we're not, we're not throwing anything out here. We're keeping it in God's timeline. If he said that he's wiped away and he doesn't want us calling it to mind, I think he's kind of serious about this. This is the Old Testament even. Can you imagine how this passage is so relevant and true after the ascension? No, we still don't believe it. I'm sorry, we don't. We have somehow taken the New Testament and shoved it back into the Old Testament and tried to make life out of it. Can you imagine mixing death with life? Well, that's what it's like taking the New Covenant truths of it is finished with, no, it's not. But even in the Old Testament, God's saying, yes, it is. It's done through sacrifice in the Old Testament and it's done through sacrifice in the New Testament. Okay, here is our Hebrew for today. Let's see how many Hebrew kids I need. We have a house. We have water. And bet could mean house. It could be family or it could actually be the word into. Then we have mem which is the primary Hebrew word that is used for the flood. And we have liquid, massive, or chaos. So it's not like a stream, it's like an ocean. It's massive. Okay? And then we have the delet, which is the door, or pathway, or to enter. And then we have another house, and then we have... Resh, which means the head, person, red-headed man. Just what? like cowboy. Okay, let's find out what happens when we put all these together. And what we have is into chaos by way of the pathway of the family's head of household. Now that's wilderness. So we're going to stop here a moment and, and put some pieces together. You remember the, the phases. We have Egypt, which is symbolic for sin and slavery and being unsaved. We have the Red Sea, which is symbolic for salvation. We have the wilderness, which is symbolic for the flesh. Self-life. What generation could not pass over the Jordan to get into the promised land? The heads of home. You see, if you as head of your home did not 
receive the redemption and sanctification through the sacrifice that was being set up through Moses, then you could not enter into the promised land. You could not go through the delet of the Jordan. Your carcass had to die in the wilderness. Why? Because the heads of the home were carrying graven imagery and idols and false beliefs and trickery of the Magi from this Antichrist that the Bible refers to as the Pharaoh. So the wilderness is into chaos. God literally walked this people through salvation and had them spend 40 years going around a silly mountain once a year for 40 years, wearing them down to nothing. And then, what did they get tired of? Their leader. They were not tired of the wilderness alone. They were not tired of everything that came with the wilderness alone. They weren't just questioning God. They were doubting their leader. The man who touches the stick. Please remember that. The man who touches the stick. The man who's on the cross. The man who touches the stick. The man who throws a trunk into the, the, the lake of Moriah. The stick became a powerful tool that was used in the Ark of the Covenant because something very special happened on that stick every year. Jane, do you remember what that special thing was? The buds. It is attached to nothing into the earth, which has been cursed, by the way. It would bud all by itself every single year to show new life. New life would come from the stick. The man who held the stick partook in new life. But it was all about the leader. The reason why that there was a whole generation of people that could not get into the promised land, it's because they were bringing in the ancestral sins into this process of sanctification. And they could not enter into rest. They had salvation, without question. But they could not enter into rest. There was a group of that generation that were not true believers. They kind of came with the group. And they decided to grab one of those magi symbols, holy cow, and melt down all their gold and plaster this graven image with this gold. And Aaron himself even participated in this whole fiasco and then God saw the whole thing going on but Moses didn't so here's my question to you why didn't God just stop it what, what's the deal with Moses he did, God doesn't bow to Moses why did he wait till Moses come down from, from the mountain God could have just did the whole thing while 
Moses was up in the mountain contemplating and doing all the things that he was being asked to do. God never steps outside of his own lineage of leadership. He doesn't look at the frail human leader that Moses was and say, Oh, you're screwing up again. I'll go do it. He waits and he keeps his own order in order in order for his order to be processed. Earthquake. 10,000 fall into the, into the great divide. Separating the goats that crept in with this generation from the sheep. And even most of those sheep were going to have to lay on the edge of the wilderness and their carcass would have to stay there. And their children got to enter into the exchanged life. The promised land. The odds of you parents actually getting this, no matter what country you're in, no matter what city you represent, no matter what household you represent, and some of my closest friends there who represent tribes in Africa, no matter what tribe you represent, you're not going to enter into the exchange life if you are carrying idols in with redemption. It will not happen. But it doesn't mean you should not teach your children and your children's children what the exchange life is all about. So that you can raise up a fresh generation. The minds can easily be fogged by these past things that we keep calling to mind. So you need to raise up a fresh generation that they have few memories to call to mind of idolatry. That is the greatest reason alone to raise your children up in the ways of the Lord because when they get old they will not part from them. Same thing works for these fleshly types. Raise the children up in the way they should not go and give them idols and when they get old they'll have a tough time parting from them. That's this generation that was in the wilderness we're talking about. They couldn't part from them. They were constantly warring with idolatry because they brought in the Egyptian beliefs into redemption. They don't mix. Oil and water does not mix. You can give it the grave appearance it does when you're in need of some salad dressing, but the fact is they don't mix. Give it time and they will separate. Here's the Greek definition for wilderness. That is by way of implication, waste, desert, desolation, solitary. And of course, as Greek usually does, they use the same word to define itself. This is what we are used to hearing in regard to the definition of wilderness. But you have to put the Hebrew definition of wilderness with the Greek definition and you have got yourself a full definition of sin of the forefather is going to produce a desolate life for you. If it's not handled the exact way that God does, I do not remember these sins. The, the 
When you bump into someone who says, I have a short memory for sin, I don't, you know, I don't think that stuff through that much or whatever, they are missing the power of the New Testament. We are left with a memory so that I can go to my brother and say, would you please forgive me for my sin or sins having an effect on you? I don't need Shannon's forgiveness for anything to live. I need Christ's forgiveness to live. The gesture of doing this is me coming to him. He is seeing in me. I've already forgiven him for whatever it is that he initially did to me. Or what I did to him. He is seeing forgiveness of the cross in real life time. So he could ask the question, where do you get this kind of love? You see, that is, that is our goal. Is so the person asks about redemption. Where would you get it? So that's why we appropriate what is already true. Now if I'm sitting there in my, my prayer chair and the enemy is throwing these thoughts at me, you are not forgiven, Christ doesn't forgive you, you know, or, or the enemy, what is best at, adversary's accuser of the brethren, it's one of the 13 names of, of Satan. So he is doing this accusing thing, which doesn't go with the scripture we just read. Anything God says is true, you can be sure the attack style of the enemy would be opposite. So an accuser is going, no, your sin is alive and well. You still, you still, you still, you still. So when you hear it, we have to appropriate the cross by going before Christ and saying, Jesus, you have already wiped this sin from my life. And I completely accept the forgiveness for choosing to follow it again or choosing to have this as a lifestyle. I appropriate what you already did on the cross for me so many years ago, which is alive this moment. So in temptation, you appropriate the truth. And in conversion, you're still appropriating the truth. So to be co-crucified with Christ, I have no visual memory of being crucified on that day with him. But I enter into it. through That, that piece of wood becomes my delet. And everything about past for Christ is now my past everything about his future becomes my future. Well, anytime you feel there's no way out of this, you're listening to the enemy. Conviction means you actually have a feeling in your gut you're about to be set free. Condemnation is confessing because you got caught. Conviction is I just got this sense I am going to be set free. Because there is someone who steps between the judge and you when you enter that courtroom and you're just so excited that you're just going to finally be honest and confess it and your attorney steps up and says, Your Honor, I'll take the cost for this. I'll pay this one. And the judge is like, Okay. This is a death sentence. That's fine. That power of grace 
is the most appropriate illustration of how it was walked out for him. So all we need to do is not tempt him and say, I'll pay for my own sin again. We need to appropriate the fact he already did. Every sin he paid for. So condemning yourself for someone else is sin. It's listening to the enemy. Guilt, feeling guilt is sin. Feeling conviction is not. Guilt is the Old Testament terminology used to describe self-condemnation. Conviction is the New Testament term that is used to describe freedom. Punishment is never used in the New Testament, ever. There's several references used to describe the Old Testament. Punishment is Old Testament. Punishment means you pay for your own sins. Discipline is the word used in the New Testament, which means to make one a disciple. Complete different focus. This one is, you're going to pay for that, bro. This one is, you are going to be, God's going to use that to make you more of an obedient disciple in Christ. So when we're parenting our children, those who use the law are introducing them to death. Those who use grace and discipline are introducing them to the teacher who they should desire to be a disciple of. But there are few materials out there on parenting with grace, parenting with life, parenting with disciple. Most of it is dragging stuff from the Old Testament. And that's why when the term was used in John about punishment. Can someone remind me what word goes with produces punishment? Exactly. Fear produces punishment. No, those who are of fear punish. And those who feel they're being punished become bound by fear. They're locked in the Old Testament. They're confessing, I am a wilderness person. I don't want to be one of these exchanged life paradise people. No. I want to punish others and I want to feel punished for my sins. Because if I punish myself, maybe you won't. And you would be shocked if God actually gave us the percentage of how many body members in Christ still use the concept of punishment instead of discipleship. The process of delving into the past or present experiences of life is certainly high risk. can be threatening, but yet, very importantly, when it comes to the discipleship process, and I've learned through the years that this general data gathering helps me and it should help you understand how patterns of thinking and feeling and their choices have been formed in the lives of those that we're actually reaching out to minister to. So I'm not calling to mind former things so this embracing thing can happen, so this pondering thing can happen. I'm wanting to gather just enough data to see why they're thinking the way they're thinking. You see, God gave us data about Egypt, so when the story came of them building that golden calf, we understood 
that the Egyptians worship holy cows. So then we looked at the people and were able to go, well, they're obviously carrying an idol from former thinking. And it could be addressed. Now, though that particular group of people literally embraced, pondered the idol of the past. They rebuilt it. That's the point. If you ponder these things, you're going to rebuild it. Plain and simple. No psychobabble. No psychoanalysis on this one. Let's face it. There are experiences like trauma, abuse, rejection, or illnesses which have a major bearing on our self-life. And due to this, our main objective is not to do psychoanalysis or psychobabble or to ponder things of the past, but rather have discovery moments that are actually going to assist us in reaching out and helping them. Where you can say, what did you just build there? Well, I built a golden calf. Well, didn't you use all of God's most valuable treasures to build that idol? Well, yeah, I guess you could say that. We used our wedding rings. Okay, where did you get the idea of a golden calf? Well, I invented it. No, you brought that from Egypt. And where did they get it? And you're helping them do what we call connecting the dots. So that they can go, are you trying to tell me this golden calf is actually one of the pimples that are on the face of Satan? Yeah. By you obeying and bowing down to this golden calf, you are saying, I treasure Satan more than I do God. I believe the two snakes have more power than the staff of God. God is not a God to be easily mocked. You can mock his son, but don't mock him. There are no swear words that God will tolerate when it comes to using the God of Abraham. You say God and then attach the word that normally gets attached to it when people are upset. You are stepping over a line that you are not stepping over if you use Jesus Christ's name in vain. You see, he's the mediator. He's set up to take the abuse, to take the trauma, to take the rejection, to take that stuff. So that God's holy throne will be preserved for eternity. Do not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. It's a special little a mark that you can cross over that is going to arouse the interest of a living God. Guaranteed. Here's a couple things to keep in mind. My goal is always to use their data to bring them to repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. Not to give them understanding and how to cope or get along better with their past. If I could have a $10 bill every time I've had a counselee quit on me because they got upset at me because I will not address the issue they came for. Same thing in attending church. There are people that quit coming to church because they discovered 
that they were not going to get the support for their sins. And they're gone. That's because they're hunting for props, which is another Hebrew letter that I'm going to be showing you very soon. They're hunting for props to help prop them up in their defiled state. They're not asking for, please help me come to repentance. Please help me reconcile uncomfortable relationships. And please help me with restoration with the person I hate. Well, when they come in or when they come to a church, if you shock them with that the first time, sometimes that in a church service that will come out because of what you're preaching on, they're not going to come back. They're going to realize that they're about, they don't want to be having their sins revealed so that there can be repentance. They are more interested in having a prop to prop them up so they can continue whatever it is that God is bringing conviction to them about. Never side with the perpetrator or the disciplee. It is so easy to do when you look at someone and they're suffering and their father, mother, brother, sister, whoever has hurt them, it's so easy to think compassion is siding with the wounded. The time to be the toughest is during the times they are revealing their sin. So whether they were wounded and they're reacting to their father's wound, you still need to stand firm and holding them in account to their reaction to someone's offense. If you side with them, you're in trouble. Because they're going to think, well, this is a natural response, isn't it? There are not two sides to every story. They're actually the numeric number used in the Hebrew and the Greek is the number of man. Six. Those six sides to every story are the offended, the offender, the observer, what the law has to say about it, God, and Satan. Those are the six sides of every story that's thrown in front of you. And as a professional counselor, I have to look at what the law says about it first. And God expects us to honor the law, so that is a critical piece. But I am very, very interested in what the law of God has to say and what God has to say, which happens to be the exact same thing. But it's the offender who is telling me this story. Sometimes I have the privilege of speaking to the, the uh, one who's done the original offending. But the offended one is usually you or I trying to tell our story of how we were hurt. The offender is actually them too. They just don't want to admit that. I know very few kids, if you slap them, that they don't react. I know fewer adults that if you wound them, that they're not going to react. 
Reaction to sin is still sin. Do you understand that? Reaction to sin is still sin. Response to sin is not sin. If I respond to sin, I am going to love someone in spite of being hurt. Well, do you know very many people who do that? Do you know how many devious children there are in the world today who are constantly thinking about manipulating and hurting someone? They're all over the world. Few know how to respond to being sinned upon. Most react. As soon as there is a reaction, I have someone in front of me, I can lead to repentance. Even though they're the ones who were offended. It is our job as a discipler to evaluate and pray about the details, the data that is in all six of these views. Or we will not be objective. Keep in mind that God not only uses the, the disciples' life circumstances, but actually permits these very circumstances to bring them to the end of self-life in order to experience the exchanged life of Christ in a new and powerful way. And we call this the downward spiral. So when they come in, whether it is just sit down and have a cup of coffee with you, or if they're, it's more of a formal setting, which is what a, a lot of what I do, they come in with this self-life, which is filled with data from the world of Egypt just filled with all kinds of data from Egypt. It's our responsibility to separate it out. God is actually going to use this self-life, which is the New Testament concept of wilderness. He's going to use this self-life to literally drive the person into this dark place that we call the tomb. So that they take off, put off the old, and put on the new, and come out of the tomb and experience resurrection life, co-resurrection. This, this is what has to happen to every indwelt believer. Every indwelt believer. From the self-life, they've got to realize, that's why I do self-condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not a liar. There is no condemnation. If you are sensing one ounce of condemnation in your life, you are this. Or at least functioning in it on that day. There's no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. You're calling Christ a liar. You're re-crucifying him if you buy into the lie of self-condemnation. Look up the scripture yourself. Those of you who are with us on our podcast, please go back to where you found this message and download the PDF. The diagram is there. Downward spiral. The next thing that happens is they get all self-occupied. Everything's about them. But you didn't address my marriage issues. Well, it's because your marriage issues is not the issue. 
and they start separating themselves from you because they want you to fix the fix that's got fixed on them to get them fixed from always trying to fix people. I remember the day when DK and I had one of our last discussions a couple of years ago before he peeled off. It was about this issue of marriage and his significance that he was finding in this marriage that was going south or had already gotten on a bus to go south. But see, that's not what he was ready and wanting to hear. He don't want to hear this. He wants to talk about incessantly about an issue that God says is a non-issue. Marriage is a result of oneness with Christ. Then it gets into self-pleasing. Okay, well then I'm just going to leave here and I'm going to go into self-pleasure for a while. And that's what happens. From self-pleasure it gets into this whole... Uh, Self-condemnation where you have to pay for your own sins. So when you get into the mode of paying for your own sins, you heap more condemnation upon yourself. First John. And then if you talk to them about it, they're so willing to speak about their convictions. No, they get defensive. The closer you get to this black hole of the tomb, the more defensive the person is at defending the acts of Satan. Call it what it is. It's not defending sin. It's defending the acts of Satan. You want to know why God gets so upset, concerned, aroused? We are supporting and defending the acts of his Antichrist. The guy that's stepping up saying, I am anti your son. We're supporting it. And then once that doesn't hold up very much any longer, they get into self-pity. I just want to die. And from self-pity, you have self from self-condemnation you have self-pity from self-pity you have self-death so there's only two death choices that they've got at this point there's only two choices of death when it gets right close to the dark hole suicide or self-aside that's it and it's high risk for a true Christ as life discipler to lead someone into the tomb, it is high risk because they their flesh can become so belligerent and angry at a father figure, they will take their own life not to find freedom. I can guarantee you it's to punish the man in the wilderness, the father, the head, the resh. The greatest act of revenge is self-destruction. It is right before you enter into the tomb. I am going to leave all of you with a message of condemnation and guilt. And Mr. Resch, you did this to me. In goes the dagger. That's why we need to reach them and show them that the data from the wilderness, from the Egypt, land of Egyptians, 
into the Red Sea. Sanctification, God wiped away their sins so he can deal with their present sins. I will say it one more time. God wiped away, washed away the sins through the Red Sea so he can deal with their present sins in the wilderness. And those who refused to appropriate that truth died in that, that crack and crevice that day. God pushed them in. 10,000 of them. They refused to even accept that portion of the message of the cross. The wood. The staff. Some hurting souls will talk about their problems endlessly as long as they have a listening ear. Most of these people have been duped by the deception that there's actually healing in talking. It's called gossip. If you speak of your sin without redemption, it's called gossip. There are people that I listen to them in their prayers and they're simply gossiping with God. They're using their prayers as an avenue to gossip. I'm concerned about this person. They're gossiping about the person. Talk without redemption is gossip. Write that one down because God will use that in your life. If you allow yourself to allow your disciple to get trapped in this violation, you pretty much can forget about the freedom that is being offered. Because every time you bring up the truth, they're just going to want to talk. Talk, 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 talk. Well, I'd rather have you on your knees. And if you're not ready for that, then let's continue to work on this. Everything has its perfect time. Confession and prayer are a whole different story because confession does involve talking. The scripture does say, confess your sin therefore to one another. Pray for one another. There's three components of deliverance in this passage. There's confess your sin therefore to one another. There is pray for one another. And what's the third? The effectual prayers of a... Righteous man prevaileth much. You need a leader. You need a Moses with his staff. Confession, prayer, and a leader. And that leader can be the, the head of a house. But it does take those three components. And that's not gossip. Focus on the information that includes personal responsibility of sin. Specific enough to bring conviction. Proven only as far as defending reactions that lead to sin and ultimately gather information that will help us show them patterns in their lives that rise up against the knowledge of God. All this is critical in leading the person we are ministering to unto an upward spiral which gives them denial of self, daily cross-bearing, proper worship, refusal to people-please, have Christ's love shine, enjoy spiritual freedom, and certainly to release the mind of Christ to minister through them. So here's how it works. You get into that, that tomb, 
And the only way to deny yourself is to be broken of it. That's the other diagram. Now we're coming out of the tomb. In order to take the second step out of the tomb, you have to have self-denial. I'm not going to bring life to that old self anymore. Then you have to carry your cross every day. So you not only have to deny yourself, you have to pick up your cross and follow him. The cross is the common circumstances that have come with your past. Start worshiping God instead of yourself. Expect from God instead of others. Then you'll have a mature love. Then you'll have spiritual freedom. And pretty soon you'll notice you're involved in a ministry somewhere. Now does that mean you'll never choose sin again? You'll never have these struggles? Absolutely not. This is the pathway of freedom every single time you get duped by the Magi. This is the, the pathway. You're not a failing Christian because you're not appropriating this 24 hours a day. This is how it works. This is the pathway. So when it happens to you, this is your pathway. And do it without condemnation. Finally, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever, whoever loses his life for my sake, well, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of him when he comes into his glory, Christ's glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I'm not even going to tread this, this territory of how many indwelt believers are ashamed of Jesus Christ and how often they choose relationships over truth. But I will tell you this, I'm not going to be one of them. And I may slip up from time to time, but I will not fall into that trap. I will speak the truth when it is given to me. I will continue to walk that pathway, even though it is not the popular path to walk. I do not want to be ashamed of truth. And truth is a person. I am, Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are the three components of practical discipleship. Warning, at the end, data gathering should uncover their ways of attempting to take God's job, which is what we call Godship in discipleship, observe patterns of disobedience, list relationships that need reconciled, and determine spiritual status, locate the real presenting problem, which is their self-life, and finally, list those nasty areas of deception, magi, those ways Satan is able to lie to the disciple without much of a fight. You're not deceived unless you're lied to and you no longer respond or react. If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family integrated fellowships, 
please log on to our website. That is www.heartlandfellowships.org. We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a pile, lose a shirt off your back. Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus fare.